Hello, I'm Sam Breakgear and welcome to The Social Podcast. On today's show, we have a very short Weird Wide Web segment, which is going to look at how a machine learning algorithm can detect whether or not tweets are sent while drunk. And for our main story today, we're going to be looking at how blockchain technology is helping to tackle the opioid crisis in a number of ways. To find out more on this subject, I spoke with Tori Adams. She leads the public sector area of Consensus, a blockchain technology company based on Ethereum. And rather than me trying to explain exactly what she does or what the company does, I think it's better if I leave it to her to explain. So without further ado, here is our call. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I know you have a pretty busy schedule. You've just come back from South by Southwest, right? That's correct. It was great down there, but exhausting. Yeah? What was the highlight? What was the highlight? Well, I suppose the professional highlight was being on a panel with Dr. Vanilla Singh, uh, Health and Human Services, and she's the chief medical officer there and talking with her about the opioid epidemic. And the fun uh, highlight was seeing the... Um, Good Omens uh, a, a pavilion that Amazon had. Ah, fantastic. Um, I'm really glad you enjoyed yourself. I'm very jealous. Uh, hopefully I'd like to make it down there myself one day. <laughs> it's on the list. Um, so I suppose if we want to start off, I understand you work for Consensus Public Sector Practice out of Washington, D.C. Would you be able to explain what Consensus is for our listeners? Sure. So Consensus was started about three years ago by Joe Lubin, who was one of the people that was involved in the Ethereum project, which was the first attempt to develop a blockchain that went beyond Bitcoin and to create a programmable blockchain that would allow us to do all kinds of things. And Consensus came out of uh, Joe Ethereum project. And right now, today, we are the largest pure play uh, Ethereum blockchain firm in the world. There's about 1,200 of us in 22 different countries. Most of us are based in Paris, London, Dublin, New York, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Singapore, and the Philippines. We do four or five things, depending on how you count them. First, we maintain the Ethereum blockchain and build it out. If you've ever used Ethereum, you've used one of our products, MetaMask. All developers use it, Infura. Um, and we do a lot of things to advance it into the next stage. So Pegasus is the next evolution of the Ethereum chain, and we're working hard to deliver that. Secondly, we develop products that can be used in Ethereum. I think we have about 30 different products in different stages of evolution. Those range from a supply chain product, Viant, down to a little bit more like uh, putting some AI onto blockchain. Uh, we also do education. We do everything from code school to C-suite. And then we also provide solutions, which is sort of bespoke enterprise for solutions for uh, government and enterprises. And then finally, we invest in companies. We run a $50 million venture capital fund, and we also focus on taking companies that come to us that want to do ICOs or similar kind offerings and taking them from white paper all the way through to the other end of uh, getting regulatory compliance and issuing their coin. 
Impressive. That's a very long list. A bit. Um, <laughs> what is your role at the company? So what I do is I lead up the public sector work, specifically right now focusing on the U.S. public sector, uh, because you know it's the biggest in the world. So what we've been trying to do is to develop applications that fit within the broad span of government and the public sector, which varies from country socially responsible applications and within that i focus a lot on health and specifically on the opioid epidemic mm -hmm. and you your time during uh, in south by southwest that was for a talk on how blockchain can tackle the opioid epidemic that is i'd be interested to know um what the outcome of that talk was like and if blockchain can indeed tackle the opioid epidemic yeah so let's you know put this into a little bit of perspective to begin with. So the opioid epidemic is one of the greatest public health crises that has hit the United States in the 20th century. Right now, an American dies every 19 minutes from an opioid overdose. Last year, we're talking about 75,000 people. Uh, since the epidemic began, uh, more than 600,000 people have died of opioid overdoses in the U.S., which makes death larger of America's wars. It is an amazing uh, tragedy that has occurred and largely snuck up on us. And we, in uh, consensus, have been very focused on what we can do uh, to help this. You know, I first became interested in all of this because my daughter is an opioid uh, addict. She's uh, currently in recovery, but she had been a heroin addict for 10 years. And and I thought, man, I got to do something about this. I've got to find a way from to do anything I can. And so we started to focus on what we could do, and we narrowed it down to a couple of areas. Uh, one of the ones we can do is to help stop pill diversion. So a big source of the epidemic initially was um, pills that were prescribed to deal with pain being diverted from their intended use. And if you think about the production cycle, the use produce the pill, then to manufacturer, then to a wholesaler, then to a distributor, then to uh, a pharmacy, and then out to the patient. And right now, those supply chains are frighteningly manual. And uh, there's a lot of pill diversion that has historically happened, either from um, uh, outright robbery, but more often than more often than not fraud within the system. So we've been working to develop blockchain-based systems that we think can eliminate a lot of the diversion and a lot of the um, theft within those chains. And essentially, every transaction, every step that occurs along the process is noted down within the blockchain. We're recording the weights from the pallet using IoT devices, so we know exactly, say, when a weight of a contributor chemical to the production of, say, fentanyl changes. Uh, we can look into each stage of it and identify might be potential diversion. So we see supply chain as being an extremely important uh, uh, effect. Uh, secondly, we see within the prescribing system, there's something we can do. Uh, right now in the States, 
um, there are such things known as prescription drug uh, management systems, uh, PDMPs, programs run the system, sorry. And uh, each state has a PDMP. And these states, uh, these systems record when a uh, opiate has been prescribed. But unfortunately, they're on a state by state basis. So if I'm in West Virginia, for instance, I can fill my prescription for OxyContin, a very powerful opioid in West Virginia. And then I can go across the border to Ohio and fill it again in Ohio. Now, by using blockchain, we can guarantee to retain the anonymity of the patient. We can ensure the data is not uh, uh, overly shared, but at the same time track when that prescription has been filled. So we will know that it's been filled in West Virginia and therefore we can put up a smart contract that will block it from being filled uh, in Ohio. We've even started to work with folks who are developing smart pill bottles. And these pill bottles will only deliver you one pill a day or two pills a day at a set timing uh, that has been established. And when that pill is delivered, it writes uh, onto the blockchain automatically that um, the dose has been given. So this is going to prevent fraud. It's going to allow us to keep a record of that. And it's going to allow us to understand how people are, are taking their medication. Uh, one of the big dangers there is, of course, that what people suffering from opioid abuse disorder do is frequently if they get pills, you take them, uh, you smush them down and either, you know, snort them you get into, um, into a solution where you can then inject them. So by controlling the dose from that bottle and being able to track exactly when and even who by thumbprints and other biometrics is taking it out, we can control the dispensing of it and ensure that we're not seeing the terrible things that happened early on in the epidemic when you had uh, 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 opioid pills really driving the addiction. Now, since then, the ep epidemic's moved on. Um, pills are still an important part. They're still uh, a critical element of uh, managing the epidemic. But we've moved on to uh, uh, heroin and then fentanyl and then care fentanyl. Uh, fentanyl is about 100 times more powerful than morphine. Uh, care fentanyl about 1,000 times. So we're talking grains of things that can be uh, lethal doses. And I tend to see this problem as a stock and flow problem. So there's a flow of people into the addiction system and stock of people already in there. So what I've talked about so far is really focused on that flow into the system. How can we prevent people from becoming addicted by the use of pain pills? And as little as four weeks of using pain pills on a regular basis can addict someone. So if you're coming back from the doctor uh, with a, an injury in the past, you might be prescribed that number of pills such that you could become addicted from a relatively minor injury. My own daughter became uh, addicted for, to uh, pain pills and then later to heroin, uh, starting out with oral surgery. Um, when she uh, had her wisdom teeth out, <laughs> this uh, they gave her almost three weeks worth of pills, and that was enough for her to become addicted. So the things I've talked about so far are how can we control that flow? How can we stop that overprescribing and overuse? When we get to that 
stock of people, those people that are already in the addiction system. One of the biggest problems that we face in the US is being able to track and discover, track patients and discover what treatments work. Uh, we know broadly what does work when it comes to medication-assisted treatment. What we don't really know is how these uh, particular treatments interact with lifestyle factors. Are you homeless? Do you have a stable home situation? Are you implied? All of these kind of things. And also genetic and epigenetic factors. What is the, uh, the characteristics of, of your biology and your genetics and your upbringing? And one of the biggest problems, because we have such a, a disaggregated healthcare system in the US, is we don't know what treatment somebody can get. They might be treated uh, by medical assisted, tr assisted treatment with drugs like Vivitrol, which is an opioid antagonist, or buprenorphine, which is a substitute you would take for, uh, for opioids. And at the same time, they might be receiving other health care that might uh, be contrary to, uh, to those factors. They might have uh, brushes with the law, brushes with uh, homelessness, all kinds of things going on. Essentially, what we lack is a single record, a single record of their interactions, not just with healthcare providers, but with police, with uh, uh, social services, all kinds of things. And what we've been trying to do is develop an identity, an identity on the blockchain that allows the person suffering from opioid abuse disorder to control their own data, their own identity, so they are not affected by the stigma and shame of addiction, and to be able to record those interactions then, such that when a medical professional sees them for treatment, they can see what they've had, what has worked, what hasn't worked, what be aggravating fact. You know, the story in D.C. of the million dollar Marine who was a uh, retired Marine um, who was then going to the Veterans Administration, the VA, for an injury and became addicted to opioids and ended up being bounced around the VA, um, D.C. health services, uh, the police, homeless services. And when it finally came to light and all this was added up, it was discovered a million dollars had been spent on this man in, in a year. You know, and nobody was tracking this. No one was understanding that one side was doing something that another side said uh, wouldn't, you know, was was uh, it disrupting that. So by having this a single ID on a phone that will allow people to access services, will allow people to preserve their data, and will also give those attestations, as we say, that they are eligible for something. So when uh, you know, a cop finds with with uh, uh, with Bupin, he's not going to bust me as he might do saying uh, I have an opiate or I'm trading buprenorphine on the street. He can actually look at my phone and see, no, I've been prescribed this. I'm authorized to carry this. So it's going to cut down on that and also create a record that we can begin to understand what works. And the other thing that we hope from this that we'll be able to start doing is to begin to understand uh, the, what is working in terms of longer term treatment, the 30 days or the 90 days that somebody is in a rehab center, and what things are ineffective and what things are out and out fraud. Now, we know there's an unknown amount of fraud in the treatment, uh, drug treatment sector within the United States. We don't know how big it is. 
We think it's pretty big. We know from places where um, fraudulent rings have been busted, where somebody will uh, set up a, a rehab center, they will take patients, and they will just warehouse them for 30 days and kick them out. Um, we know that this can actually get much worse. A chain of rehab centers uh, in uh, Pennsylvania actually turned out to be an active drug distribution ring uh, that was trading some of the worst drugs you can imagine and simply taking advantage of that. Uh, we know this patient brokering. My daughter, who I say is a recovering addict, regularly gets texts from patient brokers who say, do you know any addicts who have insurance, health insurance? Um, if so, I will give you $100 for every one you send to me. They then take them, send them on to a phony baloney uh, uh, clinic. That clinic treats them for 30 days or maybe doesn't even treat them for 30 days and kicks back some money to them. Uh, at the end of that 30 days, they relapse or they never got sober to begin with. They go back out on the streets. The patient broke then sells them on to another part until the, um, the uh, uh, insurance is exhausted. Now, there's no listing, there's no um, rating of these um, uh, treatment centers. So being able to track uh, a person suffering from opioid abuse disorders as they move through different centers, as they develop a record of their treatment, will enable us to start understanding which of these are not delivering treatment at all, which are being uh, complete frauds and which are doing something as, uh, uh, as ineffective. You know, for instance, when you are trying to get uh, somebody into a treatment center, the way it is pitched is frequently it's pitched to the family because they're the people that try and get somebody in there. And it's talking about the greenery and how wonderful it is and they've got a swimming pool and they've got, you know, horses on the site and all of this kind of stuff. Fairly bougie stuff. Now, we, you know, that sounds very nice. The evidence that that works is very slim and you're really selling the family. What we want to know is if something like equine therapy really works and we don't have the data. So, Yes, being around horses is probably very nice, but is it an effective treatment for addicts? There are case studies, there are stories, but we don't have the data we need. And by being able to start tracking people while they own their data, which is what blockchain can do, and they can, and you can keep and control your data, so we're not infringing your privacy, but being able to say you went to this place, you had this, then we can start to see your story and your history through time, and what has worked and what hasn't worked. And that becomes very powerful. And the key thing that we're trying to do here is to be able to bring the uh, person suffering from addiction into their treatment, to know that we're not shunning them, we're not uh, turning our backs on them, but we're saying, you have a vital role here with with your data with with controlling what you say to us and what you don't say to us we're not coming in and saying everything is open we're saying here's this thing the blockchain and what the blockchain can do is it can give you that sovereignty and that control over your data and let us help you by giving you this right to control what's happening and then we start to think of some fancier ideas of maybe we can begin to put uh, bounties and rewards on to that identity app. 
going through where perhaps if you've been sober for, you know, 10 days, we say, hey, if you're sober for 10 days, we, we're going to give you a crypto bounty. And that bounty, you know, might just be enough to make you think about it a little bit more, whether you want to relapse that night. We can begin to experiment with kinds of rewards that see what works. We can also work with rehab centers to say, look, we'll pay you the 15 to 30 grand up front as insurance companies do. We're trying to work with insurance. But what we'll do is we'll say, we'll give you 50% more as a crypto bounty if you can work with that addict when they leave your facility to see that they're sober. 15 days after they leave, 30 days after they leave, 45, and so on and so on, to create that bounty system to incentivize people while, again, keeping their, their privacy, keeping their control of their data, dealing with concerns about data sharing within the medical sphere, to, to manage that such that we're creating incentives and bounties to ensure that information is, is protected, but folks are incentivized to behave in the right way. Now, we talked about these things on that panel, and on that panel was a DA, a former DA from a county in Texas, uh, from a, a, a high-level public health official in the U.S., and some folks from IT companies like myself, Booz Allen Hamilton was there, and uh, then consensus. And I think the, the, the consensus was, that this is something that can help. Is it gonna solve the problem? Is it gonna uh, stop those 75,000 deaths a year? Probably not. Are we gonna take a few percentage points off that? Probably, we can probably do that. We can help the flow, uh, dim the flow of folks in, and we can help um, uh, reduce that stock. So it's a contributory solution. Uh, to the opioid epidemic. It's it's not going to solve it. No one thing is going to solve it. This is a complex uh, uh, socio-economic uh, uh, biological uh, problem that has emerged from um, how technology has developed and how our society has developed, but it's something that can help. And that's really what we're focused on. No, that's, that's important. Uh, it, you, you're right. It's, it's a it's a sad situation that, like you said, is is crept up on us, and I think it's a, a result of many factors. And I think tackling the problem will again, the solution will be a result of many factors. And what you're doing sounds very impressive. A combination of technology and obviously psychology of positive reinforcement and keeping a really strict record, yeah. I think, is going to be yeah. essential. Um, do you think that in three years' time, the situation will be better and we'll start moving towards a situation where the death's on decline or addiction's on decline? Or do you think that right now the, is the situation getting worse and do you think it's going to get worse before it gets Unfortunately, better? Unfortunately, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, we're only beginning to grapple with uh, fentanyl and care fentanyl within the system. and. We're, you know, the the way that the federal government and state and local, well, state governments are focusing on this is very much on the law enforcement approach. There's a lot of money going into public health education and into treatment, but you know, we're still concerned about imports of fentanyl from China or Southeast Asia and the role of the cartels and all of this. And that's great. Yeah, that's a, there's a place for that. We should be concerned about that. But until we uh, address the folks who are already in 
uh, uh, active addiction. And the reasons why people become addicted, we're going to have a problem. And sort of stepping out a little bit from the blockchain uh, uh, perspective, you know, we, we've got to uh, accept that drug use and addiction is something that's going to occur. One of the main reasons that are leading to death right now is when you take a shot or when you smoke something, you don't know if the thing you're smoking has uh, a high uh, dosage within it of carfentanil or, or is mainly uh, baby powder. Uh, if every time you took an aspirin, you didn't know if that aspirin had um, uh, uh, arsenic in it or if it was aspirin, we'd have a lot of deaths from aspirin. So we have to move to a situation where people can feel safe to test their drugs, for instance, where there has, you know, now we have to move to a harm reduction thing where people can get access to naloxone, which is going to, you know, prevent overdose deaths by being able to bring people around uh, needle share, uh, clean needles to prevent needle sharing, uh, uh, being able to uh, share, get clean gauze to prevent the sharing of, of, of blooded gauze to cut down on the HIV impacts. And we need a situation where people can inject safely or, or use drugs in a safe manner uh, and to be able to test those. Now, again, I think the blockchain can play a role in ensuring you have an identity, that you have a right to these services without fearing uh, prosecution by, uh, by the police. Um, and uh, I think by preserving serving an identity uh, there and showing that you can use these services, that will help. And I focus on harm reduction there because you can't treat a dead person. If a person's dead from overdose or from uh, using a product that is contaminated, then there's nothing more you could help somebody. You've got to keep them alive long enough. So I think we have to have an acceptance of that. I think we need to look more closely into what um, legalization of marijuana can do. I was speaking with a physician over the weekend who was saying, you know, in dealing with chronic pain and dealing with addiction, marijuana is showing to be extremely useful. You know, folks in Colorado, in California have seen real benefits from this and you know uh, uh, rather than going straight to opioids we really need to consider that um, you know there are various things that we can do in taking in really understanding the complex biological and behavioral characteristics of seeing that somebody doesn't necessarily get sober straight away and stay sober this is a chronic relapsing disease and we need to model our public health interventions around making sure when someone relapses, they don't fall out of the system again. So is any of that happening? Boy, it's happening slowly. Right? It's happening slowly and Europe is, as always, further ahead than the US. So I think the proje projections right now show the uh, epidemic peaking sometime in the early uh, 2020s. Um, then we would expect it to go then. What we know from the past is drug epidemics are cyclical. They come and they go. Uh, essentially, enough people see the effects of something that it begins to cause a societal change in behavior. You know, after um, the Vietnam War, a uh, very large number of Americans serving in Southeast Asia had used opioids, 
uh, as heroin or as opium. And there was a huge expected uh, uh, addiction crisis that was thought to follow. And while we did see a bump in the 70s, it quickly subsided. And we don't really understand why, apart from society changed a lot. And people were taking drugs under certain stresses. And when things like those big social changes happen and generational changes happen, it's often that people age out of addiction if they can live long enough and that society changes so to discourage people from entering it. Now, I'm not saying we should bet on that, but we do know that things like that occur. Um, we know that crack was you know, very big and then crack subsided and, and meth took off. You know, we, we see these cycles of addiction. So why we don't understand that is, of course, we don't have individualized data. We don't have that data. Now, through other 4R technologies like, you know, genetic uh, uh, profiling and genetic engineering, we're getting the ability to be able to look more down into why someone changes and other people don't and how we can treat that and again keeping the security of that data is really important and again blockchain can play a big role there but as we go forward that will help us understand how these things change and what's going on well it sounds like you're doing incredible work um like you said i'm not sure it, there's going to be one single solution but it sounds like what you're doing and um yeah, what Consensus is doing could play a huge pivotal role. And we hope so. We <laughs> I, hope. I, really, I really wish you the best, and thank you so much. Thank you for your All time right. as well today. Thank you very much. Look after yourself. Bye. Excellent. Take care, Tori. Bye. Weird Wide Web. This week's Weird Wide Web story is a short one. It's regarding a story from the MIT Technology Review, which states that Nabil Hussain and some friends at the University of Rochester have created a machine learning algorithm which can identify tweets sent under the influence of alcohol. The methodology is quite complex, but you can find a link to the article on our website which explains it in full detail. But personally, I would love to see what the algorithm makes of Donald Trump's tweets, especially considering he doesn't drink. That's our show for today. You can find all the details from today's show on our website at sociable.co. Thanks for listening.